Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. The first couple of chapters of, of Matthew, the first couple of chapters of Luke deal with the, uh, the, the conception, infancy narratives, childhood narratives of Jesus' life. And there are often passages that are, uh, at, at least by the average Christian, I think, relegated to flannel graphs type stories. We've just got this kind of a nice story about Joseph and Mary and going to Bethlehem and then we've got this nice story about uh, Jesus being taken to Egypt and then we won't talk about Herod and then we've got the nice story about Jesus coming back and we try and figure out because we want to believe the scripture and we want to apply the scripture to our lives then we try and figure out so what do we do with this how do we actually interpret this in a way and understand it in a way that benefits us today and, and I think that what we need to do is take uh, the, this latter part of Matthew 2 in a single message and see these events as interconnected, dealing with the same issue. And that issue is Matthew setting the stage for the Gospels. Matthew is the, the, uh, the first book of the New Testament Every, Justin earlier was, was speaking about the scriptures and the canon of scripture. Uh, in every list of New Testament books, Matthew is always the first gospel ever mentioned. The, for going back early into the life of the church. And some of that goes back into just a couple of generations after the birth of the church. Around 100 or even 120 uh, AD. Uh, Matthew is always listed first. It was seen as the the opening of the Gospels and the opening of the, the, the story of Christ and, and what he did. And what Matthew does here is not just occupy a little bit of our time in a preface with some stories that don't really have any application to us today. What Matthew does is set the stage for the Gospels. And basically put, he sets the stage uh, with Jesus as, as 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Matthew is establishing, is the battle, the conflict, the, uh, the spiritual nature of what's actually taking place in the Gospels. If you ask what did Jesus come to do, why was Jesus incarnated, why was he born, why did he come in the first place, there are a lot of answers, and you would, we would spread our arms wide trying to take all of that in. John summarizes it for us. He came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's works have not yet been destroyed. It would be over, overly simplistic to say that in the crucifixion and the resurrection, Satan has been utterly defeated. In the book of Acts, he deceives Ananias and Sapphira. He, he, a demon possesses the slave girl in Philippi. Paul speaks about the devil and Satan and the demonic realm and the domain of darkness. It's not till Revelation 19 that we see Satan actually cast into the lake of fire for all time. But as Martin Luther wrote in A, in a Mighty Fortress, and it's one of the reasons that I chose it this morning, his doom is sure. 
and his doom has been guaranteed through the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So before we, we begin with Matthew, I do want to give you just a brief glimpse of Satan's history. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, speaking about him, says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. That, that would be the Latin name Lucifer, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And then Isaiah goes on to speak of five sins that Satan committed in his declarations and in his pride. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high above the stars or angels, rather, of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. And worst of all, I will make myself like the most high. At that point, he is cast down. He is no longer the, the glorious holy angel. He is now the fallen angel, the devil, Satan, the accuser, the destroyer. Satan doesn't actually have a proper name after his fall. What he has is descriptions. Satan itself is, is uh, accuser. Devil is destroyer. In each of these, especially in this last one, he declares himself to be equal to Yahweh. He's cast out of heaven. He successfully tempts Adam. When Adam sinned, we died. All in Adam died because of the spiritual DNA that is passed down through Adam's headship. And by the way, because all in Adam die, all in Christ live. Because we have a spiritual DNA from Jesus, too, that is a, 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 a gift of life. With Adam's fall, Satan perhaps thinks that he has, he has finally won because God in his justice is going to destroy his highest creation. Only man is created in his image. And Adam and Eve do die, and God does pronounce judgment on them, but he also promised to send a redeemer, a human being, who would rescue his people from sin and death and bring reconciliation to God. At that point, Satan begins doing everything that he can to sever the line between Adam and Eve and the Redeemer, Jesus. We, we see him stirring mankind into such a violent frenzy that God sends a great flood to destroy everyone, but God rescues Noah. We see Satan taking aim at Abraham. We see him taking aim at Judah. We see him taking aim at David all the way along the line. He's trying to destroy the nation. He's trying to destroy individuals. And he is <clears throat> completely incapable of preventing Jesus from being born. But now that Jesus has been born, and that's what brings us to Matthew 2, now that Jesus has been born, Satan has an opportunity that he's never had before. Now all of his opposition, all of his hatred, all of his violence can be directed toward a single child. And all he has to do is destroy that child. And if he destroys that child, redemption goes away and God is a liar. And Satan has his victory. That's kind of where the, the, the story begins. We, we've got verse 13 on the screen, but we're actually going to begin at verse 8. Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem 
telling them, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and, and worship him. They listen to the king. They go on their way. They go to Bethlehem. They go to the house. They bow and they worship. They present the gifts. And then verse 12 says, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by a different way. So Herod, who's paranoid and violent, as, as I talked about in, at more length last week, tries a subtle approach as Satan is motivating him and enticing him and seducing him to exercise this power and destroy this child. Herod tries this diplomatic sweet-talking of the wise men. I want to worship him too. Come back when you find him, find him and tell me where he is. And then Herod, like a laser, can just focus in on that child. Of course, the Lord warns the wise men they would have returned. They didn't have a reason not to. But the Lord warns the wise men in a dream to leave without speaking to Herod. And they, they find another way out of, out of Bethlehem and out of Israel. At this point, there's a, a very, very small window of time that's available. See, Herod is expecting these men to return either that evening or the next morning. They're not going to spend a lot of time in Bethlehem. They know that. He knows that. Bethlehem is only four, five, six miles away. If they come to Herod in the morning on that day and they speak to him and by noon he has sent them on their way, by two o'clock they're in Bethlehem, they should be back before dark. And so we've got this narrow window of time before Herod learns what's taken place. And that's where verse 13 picks up and we have the, the escape to Egypt. Now when they had departed, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said to him, rise. That, that word that we translate rise has the sense of wake up and get up. It's, it's ringing a loud bell and saying, you need to act now. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee. And again, there's the implication of, of tremendous urgency. Hurry, go, go, go. Go to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. Just a little reminder there that as sudden as this seems, it's all completely under God's control. God is sending them to Egypt. He will bring them back at the right time. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And again, about to implies urgency. He is right on the verge. It's almost as though he's speaking to the soldiers at that moment, giving them the order. And he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now for the first time, Joseph is, is made aware that Jesus' life is in danger. This has been a tremendous experience for him over the last several months <coughs> with learning that Mary is pregnant, the visit from the angel in a dream in chapter 1. He takes Mary as his wife. Jesus is born. He names him Jesus. And they, they spend a period of time in Bethlehem. 
The wise men find them there. Jesus is not a newborn baby. He might have been as old as two, probably closer to one. He's not newborn, but he's, he's a very, very young child. And in a dream, an angel comes to Joseph, almost shakes him awake, throws cold water on him, and says, you need to get up and get dressed as fast as you can. Wake up, Mary, grab the baby, and go. Don't worry about your tools. Don't worry about the other things. Go. You need to get out of here. And for Joseph and Mary, it happens in a a shockingly sudden way. But it is not unexpected for God the Father. Because it's a matter of prophecy. The Lord has prophesied about this very narrow window of time. Five, six, seven, eight hours of time between the departure of the wise men and the arrival of the soldiers. He's already prophesied about it and said, out of Egypt I have called my son. In order to call Jesus out of Egypt, Jesus has to get into Egypt. This becomes the motivation for doing that. The Lord's timing is absolutely perfect, beyond perfect. He even uses Herod's threats and Satan's work in Herod to provide the motivation to go to Egypt in the first place. Could Herod have decided with the wise men finding another way? Well, never mind. They were probably a little bit loopy anyway. No. No. Because there's a prophecy to fulfill. And not one thing God has ever said has fallen to the ground unfulfilled. If he says it, he does it. He fulfills it. Well, the response on Herod's part is dramatic. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. That word tricked, it's not that the wise men tricked him. This is his impression. This is his belief. It's not what actually happened. The wise men fully intended to go back, and then they were warned in a dream not to go back. But Herod decides that he's been tricked. And the word there really means he decides he's been made a fool of. He decides he's been being ridiculed. They're making sport of him. They're not taking him seriously. And he loses it. When it says he becomes furious, there's no English translation that actually adequately translates that word. It takes the word fury and it throws gasoline on it. This is a rage. This is a blind rage. This is everybody around Herod trying to back away because of the anger he's displaying. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. It's not that the wise men said to Herod, we saw the star two years ago. It's that he took what they told him and decided to encapsulate two years. They may have said, we saw the star six months ago. We may have start, we saw the star a year ago. And Herod decides to, to just broaden out the sweep to make sure that no babies escape. If Herod could have killed the wise men at this point, he would have. And instead, he stops specifically looking for Jesus. And he issues, and I'm using a lot of adjectives this morning, he issues a staggeringly brutal 
order to kill all the baby boys two years old and under in and around Jerusalem. Uh, the thought is that it could have been as many as 40 or 50. How hard would it have been to send somebody to Bethlehem to say, those guys who were here yesterday with the camels and the expensive robes, the foreigners, which house did they go to? Where did they go? Who did they talk to? But Satan's tool, Satan's instrument has gone out of control. And Herod does the first century, first century equivalent of a carpet bombing. He's just going to kill them all. But it's also a fulfillment of prophecy, which means it's not a shocking surprise to God. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This prophecy is spoken in Jeremiah 31, 15. If you'll take time later to read Jeremiah 31, and I really hope you do, you'll find that Jeremiah 31 is an incredibly positive chapter of Scripture. It speaks of God reaching out to restore his people and to bring them back by his mercy and by his grace and to restore the nation and, and to, uh, to, to redeem them. It ends with a pronouncement of the new covenant. But right in the middle is this terrible, horrific prophecy. It's as though the, the promise of the Messiah is going to be in, attended by terrible, wrenching grief so that the nation is not, remind, not only reminded that they have a Savior, but why they need a Savior in the first place. Did the slaughter of the innocents have to take place? Yes. It had to take place. It was prophesied. It had to be. It had to be just as certainly as Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. Just as certainly as Jesus had to be raised from the dead. It had to take place. God never ever speaks a word and then lets it go unfulfilled. And that makes us squirm and it gives us pause, but it's also a reminder that nothing is out of the hands of God. Ever. I remember hearing uh, on a tape, not live, but hearing R.C. Sproul say, there's not a single maverick molecule in the entire universe. There's not a single molecule in the universe that escapes God's control and sovereignty and attention. Not one. If even one did, he wouldn't be God. He would just be a big version of us. He would be another creature with limits and with boundaries. How do we justify the, the deaths of these children? We don't. God is good. God is just. We take these things that we don't understand... We feel them, we grieve them. As, as we grieve the, the news of the, the deaths in Iowa, the baby with brain cancer, 
And we lift our hands to heaven and we say, Lord, this world is, is polluted and contaminated by sin and death. And we have no answer. You're the only hope that we have. You're the only hope that we have. If it seems troubling that God had the power to know this was coming, had the power to prevent it, and didn't, just think about this. It would be far more troubling to think that he had no power over it. That it happened and and there was nothing that he could do. Which means there's nothing about it he can redeem. Which means there's nothing about it that he can take and turn against Satan's purposes. Satan is the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy we continue to die. We've had prayer reports or prayer requests about that this morning. But in the midst of that, God works life so that Satan's efforts are canceled out. So for all of Herod's pride and violence, he could not preserve his own life beyond a single moment that had been allotted to him by the Lord. Verse 19 says, but when Herod Died. Herod died in 4 BC. As I mentioned last week, history says that he died of a horrific disease, uh, probably some kind of a stomach cancer, colon cancer. The reports are that he had burst open, that he was basically just leaking liquids onto the ground for days before his death. Had to be a horrifically painful death. He couldn't preserve his life. And he couldn't kill the child. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, again, get up, wake up, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. It's not just Herod that is the concern. It's also those Herod had given this command. Uh, I, I think it... it probably has been true for much of human history, was certainly true then that if your king gave you a command, your life rested on you fulfilling that command. And if it took the rest of your life, you were going to carry out that act. Well, the men that Herod had tasked with it were dead as well. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And this is interesting. Verse 22 says, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Uh, Herod had a number of sons. Toward the end of his life, he left a number of wills, uh, appointing these as rulers and then getting rid of them and appointing these as rulers. And he probably would have changed it again, but he died. And when he died, he had left Archelaus, his son, in charge of Judea. Archelaus was worse than his father was. The family, his brothers, challenged the, uh, the will and Herod's decision to put him in, in charge. And so Archelaus had to go to Rome to defend himself. Before he left for Rome, while his power is still in question, he put down a riot at Passover in Jerusalem by having more than 3,000 men killed. He went to Rome and uh, Caesar affirmed his his. Uh, his rulership over Judea. There's a bunch of different names. There's, there's king, there's ethnarch, there's tetrarch. There's just a, a bunch of different names. He was technically the ethnarch. He was so bad that a few years later, Caesar removed him from power. 
He was so violent and so unstable, he was worse than his father. So Joseph was right to be afraid. He was right to be concerned. But notice that he was warned in a dream. So then he went to the district of Galilee. Joseph didn't go to Galilee simply because he was afraid. He was concerned. He was worried about it. But the Lord confirmed his fears and directed him toward Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And with the death of Herod and those charged, the, the immediate danger is over. They bypass Jerusalem and Judea. They go to Galilee, which was under the, the control of a different brother, and go back to Nazareth. And again, we have a fulfillment of prophecy. This happened. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What's interesting is there's no specific prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. There are some who believe that it's related to the Nazarite vow that we find in, in the law. They're actually different words. That, that probably is not where Nazarene comes from. There's two possibilities that I, I think either one could be very likely. Isaiah 11.1 calls Jesus a branch of David's father, Jesse. He's a branch of Jesse, uh, descended from Jesse. The Hebrew word for branch is Netzer. Kind of sounds like Nazareth, and Nazareth may have even come from that word. It's also possible that Jesus would be called a Nazarene because of the low reputation that people from Nazareth had. If you remember from Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, Jesus... The Messiah is said to be scorned, despised by men, mocked. Uh, People wag their heads at him. They have no respect for him at all. When Jesus appears as an adult on the scene and uh, begins to gather disciples, Philip goes to a man named Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it could be he will be called a Nazarene was actually dealing with something that couldn't have been possibly been fulfilled at the time the prophecy or, or those prophecies were given, but rather what, what Matthew is saying is that this has to do with his uh, being despised and being scorned by the people among whom he lived. Regardless, it's it's a fulfillment of Scripture. We're told that by Matthew. Um, if, if you've got any more questions about that, my recommendation is that you wait till you get to heaven and talk to Matthew, see what he might have to say about it. Let's bring this home. We always want to apply Scripture, not simply for the sake of pragmatism and practicality, but because... It's the Word of God, and, and it must touch us. It must do something within us. And so let me, let me give you a few thoughts about this. First of all, we, we commonly underestimate Satan's hatred for God in his creation and Satan's work in our time and in our world. We see him at work in the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament both. And practically speaking, 
we kind of diminish that in our modern time. And we say, no, 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 these have other causes and other, other issues. There's certainly things that go on within the human brain. The human brain is a physical organ. Just as your liver can go wrong or your spleen can go wrong, the brain can go wrong. But we also know that there is a devil, that there is a, a demonic realm. There's a domain of darkness, and that domain of darkness is active. What's interesting is we get a, we get a little bit of a sense from this passage. <coughs> it's subtle, but I think it's there. What we see repeatedly is God speaking to Joseph. God speaks to Joseph, tells him what to do. Joseph hears. Joseph says, I'll trust you, and Joseph obeys. We never see Satan speak to Herod. Never says Herod had a dream and the devil came to him in a dream and said, go kill this child. What we see instead is the result of Satan enticing, seducing, manipulating, tempting, convincing Herod that Herod was the greatest king on the face of the earth, that he had every right to kill anyone who got in his way. And Herod pretty much did. As I mentioned last week, as awful as the death of these 40 or 50 little boys was, it was nothing to Herod. He'd already had thousands put to death. He'd had his own family, his own brothers, uncles put to death through all sorts of means. So this was a non-issue for him. We must not underestimate Satan's hatred for God and his creation. And until the Lord deals with him, casts him into the lake of fire, he is there as an opponent of God first and of the kingdom and of us because we belong to the Lord Jesus, and of all humanity because all humanity is created in the image of God. Until the Lord deals with him, we have the protections that are described in Ephesians 6. We have the armor of God, that is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Word of God, faith in Jesus, personal righteousness, prayer, and so forth. We're not defenseless, but we are powerless. We are powerless. We're just not defenseless. Second, we have to remember that these events set the stage for the Gospels and the spiritual conflict to come. The devil, the devil never stops opposing. He never stops trying to kill Jesus, trying to discredit him, trying to remove him, trying to interrupt what it was he was trying to do. We'll see that in, in Matthew 4 at, when Jesus is tempted. We'll see it in the, the times when the Pharisees make plans to kill him. There was, there was uh, early in his ministry in Nazareth, he, Jesus so offended his fellow Nazarenes that they shoved him toward a cliff to shove him off. And I, I think there's a miracle that takes place because it simply says Jesus just passed through them and he was gone. So it could be that he just turned around and by force of his personality and character, they kind of got out of his way. I kind of think that he just, all of a sudden they're thinking, where, where, where did he go? There's not a single nice story in the Gospels. There's not one. There's not a single story you can read in the Gospels and say, oh, that's nice. In everything that we are going to encounter in Matthew, we're seeing Jesus not subtly trying to get around the work of the devil, but charging in right through the center of the line. He takes him on, setting centers free, healing, Casting out demons, 
raising the dead. All of that has to do with erasing the, the impact of the devil on the earth. And the big thing, of course, is Jesus is saving sinners. He is taking those people away. What Satan wants more than anything else is to put God in the position of having to condemn his own creation. Jesus came to reverse that. Finally, I just want to say this. Nothing prevents God from achieving his purpose. Nothing hinders him. Nothing slows him down. Nothing obstructs him. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Nothing gets in God's way. Nothing slows him down. For all of Satan's opposition, remember all the times that you've seen in the Gospels where as Jesus is moving along, somebody with a demon comes up and the demon is shouting out, Why are you here, Jesus, Son of God? What do we have to do with you? Jesus wasn't distracted by that. He was there to deal with that demonic entity and to set that person free. Nothing prevents God from doing what he wills. And so the Father protects Jesus, protects Jesus from his conception through his birth, through his early childhood, through his later childhood, into his adulthood, all the way through his ministry. He protects him all the way through his ascension back into heaven. Does Jesus suffer for us? Yes, according to the will of God. God never lost control. It's not that Satan and God were wrestling for him and Satan finally managed to get Jesus away and beat up on him for a time. Satan had nothing to do with the crucifixion. In fact, when we get there, and it'll probably be five years the way I preach, but when we get there, you'll see that Pilate didn't want to put him to death. You'll see that Pilate's wife sent him a warning saying, don't have anything to do with this man. Why is that all of a sudden? Because Satan doesn't want Jesus dying for sinners. He would have killed him in any way he could have, but not by the cross. None of that achieves or prevents God from achieving his purpose. There couldn't have been a more imbalanced fight. It, you couldn't, can't even call, call it a fight, but there couldn't have been a more imbalanced fight than a squad of armed soldiers and a one-year-old boy. But Satan was not able to harm a hair on the head of the Lord. He had no power there. Nothing prevents God from achieving his purpose. That's why we see all of these fulfilled prophecies in Matthew. More than a dozen of them are specifically labeled, and there are many other things where we can make those connections pretty easily. Probably more than any other factor of Scripture... The fulfillment of prophecy gives me huge confidence because it it not only reminds me that God cannot lie and does not lie and is sovereign over every circumstance, but it gives me the historical evidence that God cannot lie and does not lie and is sovereign over every historical circumstance. And if he was sovereign over each of these circumstances, he's sovereign over me. And through my grief and through my gladness, through the mourning over loss and through the joy over celebration, through all of that, 
I can see God sitting on his throne. I can see the Lord Jesus interceding for us in heaven. I can see the Spirit of God keeping us, protecting us, defending us, and knowing we will never be lost. He will lose none of us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it and the power of it. We are weak, but you are strong. We are so ignorant of who you are and what you do. We have the scripture, but we rarely take full advantage of it. But even with that, you're good to us and you keep us and you preserve us. Not because of our goodness, not because of our abilities, but because of your promise. And so, Lord, I ask that you would convict us of our fears and our doubts and strengthen our faith and our confidence in you. And in this world in which the spirit of Herod is still alive Forty-five years ago, come Wednesday, abortion was legalized. Tens of millions of babies have been aborted in the United States, many more outside of the United States. In this culture of death and destruction, you shine the light of the gospel through your people. Satan wants us to doubt you and to, to live in question and to lose confidence in you, to silence us from going to others. So build our faith, strengthen our faith, convince us through the means that you have determined in your word and as you prove yourselves to us day in and day out so that we would be unshakable and that we would take this perfect and powerful gospel to the world that is in such need. We thank you for this day in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are dismissed.